Let's talk about sin. I'm going to take a quick poll. You got your polling arms ready? You might stretch them out. Okay. Raise your hand if you believe that taking someone else's stuff is sin. Okay. Thank you. What if there's a zombie apocalypse, everything's been destroyed, and you have a newborn baby? The grocery store down the road is crumbling, but you can see there's baby formula in there, and you go into the broken door, and you take the baby formula. (laughs) Raise your hand if you think taking that baby formula is sin. Hmm. Okay, okay. Okay, raise, a, raise your hand if you think buying a banana is sin. Okay, okay. All right, Emily. All right. What if you knew the banana was picked in a country where laborers are exploited in the banana picking industry? Raise your hand if you think buying a banana is sin. Okay, but you live in poverty, and you can't afford to always buy fair trade products for your family, so you buy the banana. Raise your hand if that's sin. All right. The world and our decisions in it are complicated, right? Is that blowing your mind? Um, So there are these questions in life, right, that they they don't always feel like they have 100% right answers. Should I buy a banana? Should I take this opportunity or keep looking? Should I talk about racism as a white person or just shut my mouth and let people of color talk about it? Should I stay in this Christian denomination um, that discriminates against LGBTQ people? So I can change it from within, or should I take a stand and leave? Should I give them a place to stay and try to get them to 12-step meetings, or should I cut them off and let them reach their own low? Sometimes no decision feels right. Sometimes the good and the bad feel so intertwined that every movement has a little good and a little bad and it's complicated. That's why I love this parable that Jesus tells us, right? This is a a dramatic agricultural tale full of deception and wisdom. But we're city folks, so it's harder for us to relate to agricultural tales. So um, to keep you with me, we're going to retell it, and I'm going to ask you to be a little silly with me, okay? All right. Agreed? Okay. So when I do this... um, Can you all say, "Mm mm-hmm, okay? Okay. There once was a landowner, and this landowner had a field. And this landowner also had a bunch of very high-quality wheat seeds, as a landowner would. Nothing strange about that. And the landowner decided to plant those very high-quality wheat seeds in that field as a landowner would. Nothing strange about that. 
and then night fell. And all the people on the farm read themselves the bedtime stories, tucked themselves in their beds, closed their eyes, and fell asleep as they would. Nothing strange about that. But then, now I want you to all say, ooh, when I do this, okay? But then, after everyone was asleep, an enemy came. And that enemy tiptoed onto that freshly seeded field. And do you know what that enemy had in their pocket? They had seeds for weeds. And they planted those seeds for weeds in that same field with the high-quality seed. And then that enemy ran off. And do you know when that high-quality seed started to grow up? Alongside it, those weeds were also growing up. So the people who worked on the farm said, what is this? And they went to the landowner and they were like, well, should we go out in the field and pull up all those weeds? And the landowner said to them, no. Because if you pull up the weeds, you'll pull up the high-quality wheat with them. They're intertwined. So we're going to wait until harvest time, and then we can separate everything out then. The end. Isn't that kind of deep? It's that complicated decision stuff, right? The good roots are tangled up with the bad roots, The world is so complicated with its difficult decisions, the good and the bad entwined, the banana and the wheat field, it's all coming together. Isn't that a great story? Let's think about that this week. Amen. But wait, you might exclaim, wasn't there more to that reading? And I might roll my eyes, frustrated with your amazing listening comprehension. Yes. After Jesus tells this story of the field, he goes on with these other lovely uh, agricultural metaphors. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. His teaching is all going along very well. But then his dumb disciples ask him to go back, rewind to this story of the wheat field. And then Jesus ruins it. This lovely metaphor about how intertwined good and evil are in life. And Jesus just tramples all over my nice metaphorical modern take on it. It's like he all of a sudden gets these crazy eyes and he's like, I'm the landowner. The good seed is the good people. The bad seed is the bad people. The enemy is the devil. The harvest time is the end of the world. The reapers are angels. 
When the angels harvest the good people and the bad people, they will throw the bad people into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the good people will shine like the sun. Come on, Jesus. It was a cool story before. Why'd you have to make it all weird? It's like when you find like a cutesy looking comic strip booklet on the seat next to you on the subway and you kind of start reading the dialogue between the cute little characters and it starts to get a little strange. And then you look at the title of the little booklet and it says, do you know where you're going when you die? That's how I feel about Jesus right now. But he is always saying embarrassing stuff like that, right? You know the parable about the two groups of people talking to Jesus and to the one group Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. You know, truly I tell you as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And then he says the opposite thing to this other group of people, you know, who didn't give him food and drink. We progressives, we love that story. We social justice folk, we quote it all the time. It's fundamental to how we live in the world. We see Jesus and those who are suffering, and we respond accordingly. What we don't quote in that story is that in that story, it is the end times. And Jesus is sitting on a throne surrounded by a bunch of angels. And it's not two groups of people he's talking to. It's sheep and goats. And you know what happens to the goats? They get tossed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Come on, Jesus. Why do you have to be throwing people into the eternal fire? This apocalyptic stuff... I think a lot of us try to pretend it's not there. We try to hide it from our friends and other people who know that we go to church. It's like when you're wearing light-colored pants and you sit on some bird poop and you don't want to wash it off because then you'll have a wet spot on your butt. So for the rest of the day, you're trying to hide it from everyone. Like when you stand up, you hang your bag behind your back and you're backing out of rooms all the time. We try to hide those parts of the Bible like we try to hide bird poop on our butts. It's embarrassing. It's not a good first impression, and it's really something that we don't want to talk about at all. But it's there. It's a part of our ancient tradition. It's a part of how Jesus talked and taught. And here's the thing, it was a worldview and a genre of storytelling, this apocalyptic, that came out of an experience of deep oppression. Apocalyptic thinking became popular in Jewish circles and in early Christianity during a time when empires and foreign governments were colonizing and harming our spiritual ancestors. And this is something that we need to remember Sometimes people who are oppressed say things that make us uncomfortable, especially if we are people who have privilege. Recently, I attended this workshop um, of a local cop watch group. 
Have you all heard of Copwatch? It's um, this network of local organizations that organize groups of people to go out into their neighborhoods to monitor police activity. So they might walk around, and when they see police engaging with someone, they will film it and monitor what's going on. They also do a lot of know your rights workshops so people know what to do when they are stopped by a police officer. So the idea of cop watch is that if no one else is holding the police accountable, that the people in the neighborhood need to do that work. So I was at this cop watch workshop. I'd never been with that group before. And the facilitators started the session by saying, you know, we want to be very transparent about where we're coming from here. And we want you to know that our basic assumption is that the police are tools of the state to oppress our people, period. The police are tools of the state to oppress our people, period. So that kind of made me feel uncomfortable. You know, I started thinking, oh, you know, the police aren't all bad. They go into these dangerous situations. They're sometimes targeted, as we know, and many, many of them are trying to protect people. But then this wise little voice in my head talked to this other voice in my head and said, Vicky, just shut up and listen. At one point in the workshop, everyone in the room was asked to share an encounter that they had had with the police. I think I was the only person in that room who didn't name a threatening encounter or an encounter that negatively altered the course of someone's life or of the life of somebody that they loved. I am a biracial, white, Asian, middle-class person, American citizen. My encounters with police are most often asking directions. That was not the case for the other people in that room. So I realized in that situation I needed to shut up. That I needed to sit with that uncomfortable statement, and I needed to listen to the people speaking about the kinds of experiences that would lead them to conclude without qualification that the police are a tool of state oppression in their neighborhoods. And I needed to think about how I would live my life differently now knowing that information. Sometimes people who are oppressed say things that make us uncomfortable, especially if we are people who have privilege. Jesus was a person experiencing great oppression. He was living as a colonized Jew under a government that would have no problem arresting, torturing, and executing him for about no reason. The things that Jesus says should make us feel uncomfortable, especially those of us who have privilege in the world, those of us who may have never really lived under a cloud of imminent arrest, torture, and death, 
those of us who tend to trust the justice systems of our government because they have been built to protect us, often by harming others. Those of us who, according to the privileges of this world, hold the right citizenship documents and love the right people and have the right gender identity and hold on to the right amount of wealth. Jesus' words should make us uncomfortable. And if they don't, we're not reading all of them. Jesus, our Savior, was an apocalyptic teacher. He and his followers were a part of a movement in the apocalyptic worldview. For our spiritual ancestors, it was pretty normal to talk about a last judgment in which God was going to be the final judge. For our spiritual ancestors, it was normal to talk about the world as we know it ending completely and a new world taking its place. And especially for those of us who have privilege in this world, we need to quiet those voices in us that say, but is this world really all that bad? At some point, those of us whom our world, our government, our society was made to benefit need to listen to our spiritual ancestors who were living in a world that was made to benefit other people. And they were so harmed in that world that they concluded it could only be redeemed by being completely replaced. Sometimes people who are oppressed say things that make us uncomfortable, especially if we are people who have privilege. But this vision of this divine judgment at the end of the world is, is critical. Because at its essence, it is offering an alternative story about what is going on in the world. Because the story of the world of the empire is that the government is right in everything it does. People who are stopped and arrested, who are stopped and killed by agents of the government are criminals and they deserve their punishment. People with citizenship in the empire are better than people without it, and they deserve to be treated with more dignity than others because this empire has power over your life and your death. It has the last word, and it is to be feared. That's the story of the world of the empire. The apocalyptic story is an alternative story. It says that some of the stuff going on here around you, to you, the roots of this society in which you are entangled, the harm that you're experiencing, it is not right, it is not just, and you don't deserve it. And that the power of this empire over your life or death is not the highest power. There is a higher power, there is a higher justice that transcends even your life and death. That was the alternative story of this apocalyptic worldview. Now our stories, the, the narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves, have a lot of power. This is a simple example. 
A pastor I know, he would always tell this story about his son. When his son was growing up, he decided that he was going to be an engineer, right? Any engineers in the house? All right, yes. Looked up to you. There are kids looking up to you guys. And that story he told about himself, that he was going to be this engineer, it influenced how he lived his life. So he realized that to become an engineer, he had to work really hard in school, right? And so he studied a lot, and he got into a really good college. And today, he is not an engineer. Yeah. He's something totally different. But the story that he told himself about his future wasn't a a precise prediction of what the future would look like, but it was a story that motivated him to get to the next step in his life. It was a purposeful story. The same is true for the stories that we tell ourselves about our present and about our future. They motivate us to live in a certain way. Our spiritual ancestors lived by an alternative story, and it changed the way they lived their lives. They didn't just hang their heads in shame when a relative was swooped up in a raid. They knew it was wrong. They didn't give up their faith communities under threat of persecution. They knew that no matter what the world powers did with their bodies, God held them in God's love, and that was more important than life and death. So what story will we live by? Will we live by the story of the American dream? That no matter how oppressed someone starts out, no matter what generational poverty has contributed to their life, they can work hard and achieve a salvation also known as wealth and power over other people? Will we live by that story? Or the story that people who are detained and deported and killed by the state have committed acts of criminality and that they deserve every bit of their punishment? Will we live by that story? Will we live by the story that we are less than if we don't achieve some certain standard of lifestyle or beauty? And that we deserve everything we have if we achieve or have been given a certain standard of lifestyle or beauty? Will we live by those stories? Or will we live by the stories that Jesus told? The whole of the stories, including the uncomfortable parts of the story that come from the underbelly of empire. Will we choose to live by the stories that remind our privileged selves that the world that has been built for us is infested with sin and must be changed completely? And will we choose to live by the stories that remind our oppressed selves that we deserve better than this and that the harm and the hurt are not the final word.
may we tell and live the ancient stories. Amen.